going to use that. You know that's felt like I'm tied to a post. And so we'll see how this works, okay? One of the things is, and, and many of you know, walking in here and modern technology used to, you just came in and you just started preaching, you know, you could preach under a tree or somewhere else and whoever could hear you, they got close and you, nowadays you got to figure all this out, right? And so as I walk in this morning, my microphone's already not working, so I spend 15 minutes here in worship trying to figure out how am I going to get this microphone to work. So we're going to see how that works and maybe it's not going to. Okay, we're going to get started, and you know, Josiah and I have a close enough relationship if he comes crawling up my back here trying to fix this. We, we know each other well enough, right? We've been, yeah, so we've, we've taken those, well, I don't want to get into where we've been, so I won't get into that. We've, we've covered a lot of miles together, so. October 1997, Jan and I were driving back from Phoenix in our Astro van going across West Texas, two or three in the morning. And we were making, we were praying about whether or not we were going to move to Arizona. We had come out and did our interview, et cetera, at Crossroads there in Chandler. And we're driving, and you know, and like many of you, if you've ever driven through the night, what Jan and I used to when we were much younger, we would do those hardcore drives, just start driving and, and you drive all the way through. Whatever that time was, you just drive it all the way through. And I think we may be past that, I'm not sure, but we, 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 at that time we were still in, in the middle of it. Kids in the back, of course nobody's ever in a seatbelt in 1997, you just had them laying wherever, right? And Jan wakes me up and she said, I saw fire, basically is what she said. I go, okay, I see a lot of things at 2 or 3 in the morning when you're driving. And she said, no, and she, she was convinced, and I am convinced to this day, that the Lord spoke to her as she began to see in her rearview mirror, there's fire in the West. There's fire in the West. Now, we did not know in that moment that we would end up in Phoenix. Prayed and continued to pray and did the best we could to understand what the Lord was telling us, and we moved here. And there have been multiple times the Lord has given us opportunities to leave Phoenix to go back wherever, go somewhere else. But one of the things that has stayed with us is the fire in the West. That somehow, some way, we were not ready to leave yet. Now, fortunately, there's a lot of other reasons we've stayed here, but that was one of them. We're starting a series today going through Pentecost's Church on Fire. And I'm going to tag it into the last sermon, More Than Able, over the last few weeks. But one of the things we realize with fire is, and, and I was going to burn a candle here this morning because I like candles, uh, the smell, uh, it, you know, when you've raised boys or been around a lot of boys, you're trying to figure out ways to dampen down. The girls may not have the same issue, even though I've raised a lot of girls. Boys' rooms smell different. Anybody ever been? I've raised three girls and a boy, and boys' rooms smell different. They just simply smell different, okay? So you try to figure out a lot of fragrances to, to tamp that down. But one of the things I love about it nowadays and, and is that all you got to do is just put that lid back on the candle and you just watch it just go poof. Because when that oxygen is removed, what happens? The fire is gone. And one of the big concerns in a church and what God has called us to do 
is the fuel, the fire, and the oxygen. For the fire to burn in the church, it takes a lot of things. And as we read Ephesians 3, and we'll read it again here in just a minute, one of the big challenges is that when we say God is more than able, immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine, according to... How's it going, Jose? According to the fire, according to the power that is at work within us. Let me ask you a question. People have come to church today for a lot of reasons. I get that. Some, you know, want to be here and they're just passionate about being here. Others, there's various reasons. But let me ask you a question. So you're already here. Since you're here today, did you come today to hear from the Lord? Hello, hello, hello. Is that good? Thank goodness that helps me. You're, I'm just, you know I'm going to be a better preacher uh, detached from that. Okay, here we go. Okay, let's start all over. I'm gonna, I, I think the first part would have been better without that. First question is, did you come here this morning? And I know we can hear from the Lord a lot of different places, right? I mean, there's no question about that. I hear from, you know, there's no question. I mean, I, Jan, I believe, heard from the Lord in middle of West Texas, looking in a rearview mirror. She heard from the Lord. I, I sat at a traffic light at, at, at Robson Richmond Road in Texarkana, Texas, and I looked over, and I, I believe with my mind, I, I saw a gymnasium on a parking lot that there was no gymnasium. Sometimes they come in pretty crazy ways. And that gymnasium ended up getting built, by the way. I, I didn't know it was of the Lord or just my imagination. I could see it in my mind's eye, but I believed it was the Lord. And the Lord used that in a mighty way for many years there in Texarkana where we were. So sometimes the Lord comes in very visual ways. Sometimes he comes in very quiet voices. Sometimes, for sure, he comes... So when you sit down and read, do you want to hear from it or do you just want to change knowledge, get, gain knowledge? Because one of the things I'm so convinced of is it's one thing for God to give us more information about who he is. It's another thing for him to change us to what we care about. It's one thing to believe. It's another thing to care. So the second question is, do you want to hear from this? The second question would be, the first question is that the second question would be, Will you do something with it if you do hear from him? I shared with you last week, one of the reasons I believe I grew in my faith so fast at 27 years old, first, I didn't think I was smart enough as you, and, you, and I've proven it since then, that I wasn't smart enough to argue with God. I wasn't smart enough to argue with his word. Now, of course, I've tried to gain con contextually. I've tried to get smart. No, no question about that. You don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. Try to get better at understanding it even over the years. But, but what I understood in that raw 27-year-old that really knew nothing about the Bible, what I did, what I, tried, what I thought I could understand, if he gave me the, the, the strength to do it, I was going to try to live it out. I moved that from non-negotiable and moved it into application. But in the parable of the sower, many of you know I've, I've preached on that before. It's one of my favorite passages of Scripture to, to preach out of. But one of the things in that passage, it says in Mark 23, 24, it says, if anyone 
has ears to hear, let them hear. And Jesus said to them, be careful what you're hearing, the measure or the thought and the study you give it. Now, again, we've talked about it over these last many weeks. We've talked about, there's a lot of reports we're hearing right now. You can get more information than you've ever thought you'd ever want right now. You can, you can, I mean, you can spend your whole day on just bunny trails and gaining more information than you want. The measure you give this truth you hear will be the measure that comes back to you. So when you weigh it, when you receive it, how much weight you give it is how much it will come back to you. If you have ears to, what does Jesus say in Revelation to, to, to the churches? If you have ears to hear, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. So I hope today you've come and with that in mind, and I hope I have too. Sometimes the Lord speaks to me when it comes out of my mouth, and I go, wow, okay. I needed to hear that. Because sometimes I don't necessarily hear it before it comes out of my mouth. <laughs> I go, Lord, thank you. But Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. To him be the glory in the church. Two ways that that God shares his glory. Obviously, one of them is through Jesus. The other one is what? Through the church. Paul writes in Ephesians 3.10, just, you know, just previously in this chapter, that so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And he writes more about those kind of things in Ephesians 6. said, God's purpose in all this is to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church has a tremendous role. It's staggering what our role is and what God's trying to accomplish. It's staggering, if that's true. If that's true. So Paul writes in Ephesians 3 at verse 21, glory in the church. God shares his glory with us. You've heard me talk about before the Shekinah glory. The glory of God, what happened was, and where it goes all the way back to the garden, is Adam had the glory of God. What was supposed to happen when nature, when the animals, all of them saw Adam, what was supposed to be their confusion is almost as if they were rubbing their eyes going, man, I, I just thought I saw God. Because Adam's role was to represent God. Represent him, to represent him. 
So when people, when, 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 the, when, the, when nature saw, saw Adam and Eve, they were supposed to see God. They were supposed to get that confused. But because of the fall, we fall short of the glory of God. And so what happens when Christ comes back in our life, comes into our life, begins to restore us back to what we were originally designed to be, all of a sudden little pieces of God begin to be reflected back to those around us. They begin to see us representing God of who he is. That's part of what the church's call is. It's the glory, is to represent itself, represent God back to the, to the world around us. We've talked about it a lot over the last few weeks, this doxology. We talked about it as Paul writes at the end of Romans 11, or he writes here in Ephesians 3.20. A doxology is just telling in words about the glory of God. Paul, like us, puts a few words down and does his best to try to tell the world, tell those he's writing to, this is what I believe God is. And he knows when he's doing it, the effort's not enough. It can't be. But he's trying. So as we as a doxology, as a church to the world around us, we will not be able to express all that he is. But we sure need to try. John chapter four, I'm not gonna read. You know, Allie does a great job on this passage, so I won't preach a sermon that she does just such a great job with, but I do wanna piggyback on it. This Samaritan woman, and Jesus is going through Samaria. Because he has to, and we can talk about what that means. But for sure, they're going through an area, not just as a woman, and the woman that you read, if you would go back and read John chapter four, if you don't know the story, I'd encourage you to go do that. Phenomenal dialogue there between Christ and the Samaritan woman, and why she was there in the middle of the day. All the things that go around that, going around that. But she not only was... A Samaritan, and she not only was a woman, but she was this woman. And what's interesting about that to me is the dialogue, it's sure easy to find, and maybe many of you in here saying, I can find myself in that story, and it's not Jesus for sure, right? He knew my ugliness before I confessed it. He knew my dysfunction before I confessed it. He knew my potential before I realized it. This man knew me. So we get later in the story, and this is where I want to pick it up because this is my concern for the church. Because we know Jesus goes to the marginalized. I mean, all you got to do is read this. I mean, you, you don't, if you read this and don't realize that, you've just missed the whole context of Jesus' journey on the face of the earth. There's a lot of things he did, but one of the things for sure is 
he was with the marginalized. He went to the dark places. He was the light in the dark places. Verse 25. Here's the woman. We're picking up from her. Her end of her conversation with Jesus says, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Okay, this is starting to bother me. Do you feel the echo? I'm sorry, I'm trying to, trying to figure it out here. I hear myself coming back, so bear with me. Just then his disciples returned and surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made their way towards him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought, could someone have brought him food? My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of who, who, him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying? It's still four months until harvest. I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe to harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another one reaps, is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So so when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe what you just said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. My biggest fear is much like what these disciples experienced here. And there's a possibility they saw her twice. Is that I will miss what God is up to. Because of my preconceived ideas, because I thought I figured out what God was up to and he was already at work. I think one of the biggest challenges of the church moving forward, not only in America, but around the world, is God may be working differently than his work up to this point. He may be active in ways, I've said this before many times, I'm so glad God works outside of my theology. I believe and preach what I preach because I believe that's how I interpret, but I also smart enough to know he works outside of that. Thank goodness. He is up to stuff that we don't understand. I mean, how many times, whew, I mean, can you imagine 
If you're a disciple, I mean, I, I realize why they don't ask him much, because they realize they're in over their head. I, I would guess that at times. They're just in over their head. But when Jesus says, I got food you know nothing about. What? I, I don't understand that. I don't know what that means. I don't know how to interpret that. He said, my food is what? To do the will of the Father. That's my food. That's what energizes me. That's what makes me go. That's the fuel. You know you need fuel for a fire to burn? Oh, we need the Holy Spirit for sure. But what drive, drove Jesus was to do the will of the Father. And it wasn't till Pentecost, which we'll talk about church on fire, it wasn't till then that they began to, at least at some level, have some way of understanding what Jesus meant. Now they had eyes to see what they couldn't see before. They have a tongue to speak that they would never speak before. They had hands to put to something they never would before. They had feet that would go that they never would before. They had ears to hear. Because the Spirit, being born into the Spirit, gives you something Jesus says to them, this is the NS, NASB, I don't even have it up there, I don't think. It's where these disciples didn't even realize they were already on a mission. Their everyday everywhere was a mission. And that's the thing I've said over the years, one of the things I think the church has done a disservice at times over the last 30 years, and I've been a part of it is that we've made a mission trip, missions, an event instead of a lifestyle. So people sit around and wait for the church to put together the event and to go somewhere, to do something. When your mission is when you get up in the morning, it's to do the will of the Father. And when you realize you're on a mission and instead of trying to pass some class someday so maybe you'll get a, a B or, a, or an A at the end of time that somehow or another God will give you a good grade, what if you just got up each day and realized I'm on a mission today? I'm not just trying to pass a course. I'm on a mission today. So everybody that I come in contact with, God may already be at work. And I don't get to decide, I don't have to decide if he is at work or not. That's on him. But something has to change in us to have that kind of mentality, right? One of them is, I think, is one is, is empathy for the people around us. Tied into mercy and grace, obviously, but it's compassion where it moves me, it changes me. That I don't just believe what that scripture said. I care about the people that it's referring to. I said this early on. When, when I came to know Christ, I, 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 when I, I, my maturity level, you would have said, man, that guy is raw. Okay, he's just absolutely raw. He's quoting things wrong. He's doing all the things, which I was. But what you could not deny was what I cared about changed. The believing caught up later. 
of what I cared about just got flipped upside down. Not just what I thought. Not just I'm, I'm smarter in some ways. But I literally got, I was changed. One of the reasons, and many of you know this, why do we, you know, at Friendly Chapel in, in North Little Rock with Brother Paul Sr., Brother Paul Jr., that many, most of you know here, why do we go back there over and over and over and over? It's not because they teach this deep theology that, man, I just, my mind just blew up today because of all the deep stuff that Pastor, Brother Paul just taught. It's not. If you heard Paul Sr., as I did, and Jan and I did many years, you wouldn't get in a theological lesson. But what you were getting was a reality lesson in how to live life and love others. Because what changed about Brother Paul wasn't the fact that he became so much smarter theologically. Matter of fact, he got ordained. I've told you this before. Paul Sr. got ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. And he didn't really ever pass any of all the courses we were supposed to do. Finally, all the guys are sitting around the table one day after he came in for an interview, and they just said, and Brother Paul just told him, Senior just told him, I'm not going to do that. Not because I'm rebellious, and because he wasn't. If you knew him, he wasn't rebellious. Matter of fact, I don't even know if he could have the way he learned. And Jan would say, because when he would read Scripture in the services, he would just go, Mom, would you stand up and read that for me? Because he didn't feel comfortable reading it in public like that. And she would stand up and read it. And there are times you almost had to have a translator for him because he was from South Arkansas. And that's not, a, I'm not kidding. They would, they would call it, I know he went to Brazil Institute out in, out in Los, Los Angeles one year and a guy, a friend of mine, Dan, told me, he said, Kurt, he said, man, I, I, I love Brother Paul. He said, but man, I felt like I was going to have to have a translator step in at some point. But there was no mistaking what he cared about. There was no mistake about that. I'll just kind of backfill the rest of it. When you let empathy and compassion take over your life, God begins to take, he figure out, you'll figure out what to believe. One of the things I want to make sure is I Look at Jesus as you read that passage of Scripture and many others. What I loved about Jesus interfacing with those in the margin, he didn't lower the standard of what it meant to follow him. They knew they had the power now to live up. So is God's going to call you to go interface with people that maybe you don't even some would even say, Who, why are you hanging out with them? doesn't mean you have to compromise what you believe truth is. Matter of fact, truth, I believe, sets us free ultimately. Lowering that doesn't help us. And it doesn't help them. Because there's no freedom in that. Like we've said before, when Jesus repeated, when Jesus went around preaching and the, and the early disciples went around preaching, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand they were not saying con condemnation condemnation what they were saying road to freedom road to freedom road to freedom it wasn't condemnation it was the only way out why would you not say that transformation 
few years ago, we showed a video here from M19, I think. It's uh, uh, the guy, Pastor Ron Riddle <clears throat> in El Paso, Arkansas. And some of you will remember it when we watch it. I want us to play that right now, and I'll come back up and close this out here. Really, it's conquering the fear. Fear has such a way of paralyzing people. Because that's why it's so much adrenaline, because there's so much possibility for what could go wrong and uh, how bad you could get hurt. And that's what keeps some people from being good roadstock riders is just fear. And keeps some people from being strong Christians is fear. Paso, Arkansas is a little bitty town. There's not even a couple hundred people in it. There's two stations in the, in the corner and a post office. But what I knew about El Paso, everything cowboy that happens in Arkansas passes through El Paso, uh, going to a rodeo one way or another. And so I determined through prayer and just studying about it that El Paso is where we needed the cowboy church. This has uh, been one of the most uh, challenging and rewarding things I've ever been part of. A lot of hard work. I think I've worked a lot harder than I ever did as a traditional pastor and I had to make some adjustments myself in the way I approached ministry. When I preached in a traditional church, I pretty much was preaching to the choir every Sunday morning. But I know that when I stand up and preach here on Sunday morning, there's a good chance that anywhere from a quarter to half my congregation is as lost as they can be. And so that puts fire in my belly to clearly present the gospel. They believe in God, but just because they know God, that lots of them never had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They believe in God, but they but they rodeo on the weekends, they horse show on the weekends. And so a cowboy pastor's gotta understand where they come from that's what's so exciting is that these folks are great people, but they need to know Jesus Christ. You've got to make a connection with the community to allow you the opportunity to evangelize. That's the deal here is that we have a built-in connection with this community through the arena. And then second of all, you've got to lower the barriers to coming to church. We've got to stop expecting people to behave and dress and talk just like we do because they've been there one time. The men is who we target. And that's that guy, probably spends a lot of time in the bar, never spend any time in church. But they, they've been overlooked just simply because they wouldn't, they wouldn't modify to what the church says church looks like. Once the gospel is presented, you know, the Holy Spirit does the work, but sometimes you, you don't get that opportunity because of the roadblocks that are in the way. And so we're always going to keep it like a real simple barn setting 
where, you know, Cowboy Joe feels comfortable to come in with, you know, horse poop on his boots. We're not changing the message, but we're sure changing the environment uh, that it's presented in and, uh, and our methods. I've had people come to me and say, hey, you know, so-and-so's got alcohol in the breath or think they got it in their cup, you know. And, and I've, I've had people there to tell me, you know, if you don't ask them to leave, we're going to leave. And I just said, you know, look, if you leave, there's a dozen other churches right up and down this road right here that you can go to and you'll be accepted and right at home. But if I ask that individual to leave, they may never darken the door of a church again, and most likely they won't. And so I think as long as those people are there, we're getting the chance to share the good news with them, and that sooner or later the grace of God is going to get through. It's the way we do church, and we just we take people right where they're at. We all go through crisis experiences, and I think that's how God grows us usually. These guys go through crisis just like anybody else. They have parents that die, brothers that get killed, somebody gets hurt, and, and so they, you know, that's when they sometimes start seeking out spiritual help as well, and, and they want to go to somebody they feel like's been there and done it, you know, somebody that understands where they're coming from. And so um, I'm, you know, I'm not proud of anything I ever did that wasn't connected with the Lord, but I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I can pull from that those experiences to kind of identify with some of these guys. We're seeing people get saved that normally wouldn't have darkened the doors of a church. Families that are being restored. And we've just built a great community here. Part of the reason I wanted to share that with you, many of you saw that a few years ago when we brought it to you. They just celebrated their 10th anniversary this last Easter, a few weeks, about a month ago. And what's crazy is in that 10 years, they're a church of almost 1,500 now. They have five satellite campuses. They've baptized almost 900 in that 10 years. And one of my favorite in a town in Arkansas, population of 267 people. We may have to think about this different. We may have to go about it different. I love his quote when he said possibly some of the cowboys are even drinking in church. I love his quote. He says, look, if you leave, there are a dozen other churches up and down this road that you can go to and be accepted and be right at home. But if I ask that person to leave, they may never darken the door of a church again, and most likely won't. We believe if we share the truth with them, sooner or later, God's grace is going to get through. We take people right where they are at. I don't know how revival is going to look in America, and I think the church's best days possibly are ahead of it, not behind it. Don't know that for sure. Obviously, I'm not prophetic in that. But I know there are unique ways. I mean, I, I see one of our friends here, I won't call his name out here, but who does ministry in places that would scare most of us to even go to and be a misunderstood. And I, I appreciate what you do, not only here locally, but around the world. 
I was reading a CNN article with quoting from New York Times, and I know most of you in here just shut me off on either one of those or both of those combined together. I get it. I realize it. <laughs> but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a, you can look the article up if you want it, but I said that many scholars envision a vibrant future for Christianity. A New York Times columnist is quoting. That the future of American Christianity is, is neither white evangel- evangelicalism or, or white progressivism. The future of American Christianity now appears to be a multi-ethnic community that is ar- largely led by immigrants and the children of immigrants. Christianity could abound in America if white Christians embrace this one change. They quote this, we cannot assume that America will become more secular so long as the future of America is less white. Now, you may not like that quote, and I get it for some of you. I don't think it bothers most of you. And don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't have, as they were saying, I don't have time to explain what I didn't mean by what I didn't read full in there. But what I do want you to hear is this. If we want the church to be on fire, and we have to broaden our mind of what that may look like. And it may not look like what it's looked in the past. But I do believe it will be what it looks like in heaven. <laughs> That's the part I believe. We're going to be surprised. Again, I don't know what all that looks like in God's economy. Who's there, maybe? Maybe surprised who's not there. Hope you get a chance to figure that out. <laughs> but really, what are you up to, God? Jesus, I have fuel. You know what my food is? You know what my fuel is? Do the will of the Father. Do the will of the Father. Did you come here today to hear from him? Second question is, if you did, we act on it. Or at least talk about it. Process it. I want him to more and more change what I, I mean, I, I do try to educate myself, and, and whether it shows or not, I do. But what I want more and more is God to break my heart for what breaks his heart. I figure the education will come catch up with it. Amen. Amen. Beside him, won't y'all stand? We're going to close this morning and around the Lord's table. As we prepare our minds and our hearts, just logistically, again, to remind you, as we come down front and there are gluten-free on the back row, come down these aisles here if you can and then return back to your seat. And uh, I'm going to pray for us and just when you feel ready, you partake of the elements at your seat. But... uh,
was thankful. He's continued to hone us. He didn't just say, I, I did all my work 30 years ago and that's all you needed. We are transformed and we are being transformed. And sometimes it's hard when he starts taking off those edges. Going, yeah, you used to, that was okay then. It's just not okay now. And he's forming us and then shaping us for what he has in store for us as an instrument in his toolbox. As we go before the Lord, take a second just to, uh, the word says, and Paul says, examine ourselves. understand that anything we would need to repent of that the road that repentance takes us down is one to freedom not bondage and the second one is just to remember Jesus says when you do this do this in remembrance what I have done for you. And on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread. Said to them, this is my body. Represents my body. And he took the cup. reminded them and showed them that again at times they didn't quite understand all that they would later we have the advantage sitting here today of what that cup meant the blood that would be shed for us and as we partake of the bread and the juice we do it as a remembrance our lives being changed for his glory and we are thankful Lord help us now as we come around the table we do it to honor you we pray this in your precious name Jesus Amen Amen as you feel led please come